It has been fun to be with you last week in September 3rd and spend some time with my former student, Emma. I know they're away today, but I had lunch with her and Ben last week. And she was always special, as I said, in September. I also want to thank Hudson Bell for inviting me these three times. And I'm so glad you have a pastor coming in a few weeks. And also, Angela and Greg Howard, they've hosted me two of these three weekends, including last night. I walked into their den that first night, and well, the, I knew in advance the Lord had forgiven them for being UNC Chapel Hill fans, because <laughs> they were playing the South Carolina Gamecocks that night. And uh, despite that nemesis of those op that opposition, nonetheless, I just felt like I'd known them my whole life. They're so easy to get to know, and I am grateful for their hospitality. And I'll be thinking of your church occasionally. I can't say daily praying for you. I'll keep abreast of what's happening through Emma. And again, I thank you for having me. I'll move this just a moment. I have a lot of memories like you do of Christmas, most of them very positive. One memory that at first I didn't see as positive is my dear father, cotton mill worker, seventh grade education in Western North Carolina, died on Christmas Day with me in his hospital room in Durham, North Carolina, though we're from the western part of the state. He had kidney failure, and he was suffering mightily. I recall at first I was thinking, Lord, not today. N n every Christmas from here on out will be tainted. This was in 1978 when my dad was 59. Uh, but then as I thought about that, the Lord just whispered and says, Terry, your dad loved me. Your dad taught Sunday school. He knew the Bible as well as many people with college graduation in Bible. And I took him home as a gift on Christmas Day, the day you honor my birth. So I, I just smiled when I thought of that. What, what other day would be better to take him home? But I have a memory to launch the message about my father. I must have been seven or eight years old. I had an older brother named Dennis. And like many children, even though we were church family, and I certainly believed in the Lord, I, all I could think about was what I was going to get for Christmas. Because in our family, you didn't know what you were going to get. You didn't give them a list. You, it was a surprise, and usually a good one, because even though they had a menial income, they usually treated us very nice on Christmas. And I recall one day I was thinking about fireworks. We could buy fireworks. It was illegal in North Carolina, but we lived near the border to South Carolina, so we would go get them anyway and fire them off in our country home. All my brother and I could talk about for days is what are we going to get? And I want, can't wait to Christmas Eve when Dad will let us start shooting off the firecrackers. Well, Dad had heard enough. My dad loved the Lord Jesus, was a beaver for the Bible, a simple cotton mill worker. But he heard me talking like this one day. Dennis was with me. He said, get in the car right now. When my dad spoke, you listened. He was upset. We didn't know what we had done wrong. He piled us in the back, took us up the dirt road by our home, pulled into the woods in what used to be an old sawmill road. It was mostly bushes now. Pulled in, took out his Bible. He read the Christmas story of Jesus' birth in Luke 2, closed his Bible and says, Boys, that's the meaning of Christmas. What a memory. I'll never forget that. I thank God for that heritage of faith. But what is the meaning? I know most of you cognitively know this, but we need reminders. 
Why did God become man in what we call the doctrine of the incarnation? We talk about incarnation and fellowship too, that God actually incarnates his love for us through the skin of other people who care for us. That's fellowship. But it basically is deity becoming flesh, God becoming man. And I, I just want to share with you today some things that are probably review, but I've wept over them this week because I never get too old for this. I want to ask, why the first Christmas? What were some of the gifts we unwrapped, figuratively speaking, when we put our faith in Christ? Why did he have to come? And the passage for that is in Colossians 1, 13 through 22. I know it's printed in your bulletin, and it's printed, I believe, in the New American Standard, which I'll be using. But if you want to follow along in your version, it won't be radically different, and it certainly won't mean the same. I'm going to give some background after I read this text before we dive into the answer to that question. Why the first Christmas? In verse 13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, he's talking about him and the Christians at Colossae, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, which literally meant he existed prior to. And in him all things hold together. Jesus is also the head of the church, the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good will and good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through the death of Christ in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of your word. I pray first that I will take all this to heart and not just speak it. But I'll pray that you would do what I cannot do. For understanding, I pray you will take it from the ear to the mind. And for affection toward you and application, take it from the mind to the heart. For this is for you. In Jesus' name, amen. A bit of background before we delve in to answering why the first Christmas. Paul, I'm not going to go into great detail or be too academic. But the Apostle Paul was writing to refute what's called a Colossian heresy. There was a lot of things I don't have time to mention about that heresy, but it was an unusual mixture or blend of a few elements of Christianity being taught, but also extreme Jewish legalism in terms of dietary laws and so forth, but also Eastern mysticism. But the main thing that they taught, which he counters in this book, is the fact that Jesus Christ did not become a man not in the real flesh. It may seem like he did, but that was an emanation of some sort, very mystical idea, because they believed 
that those heretics, they believed that anything physical in the physical world, such as the human body, was evil, and God could not Im be embodied in a fleshly body because that would be evil. That's why you're going to see some of the terminology we'll go over today in this text and in others. So he's refuting that, that Christ has indeed became fully man, though he was fully God as well. Also, if you'll follow along, I want to give a few definitions before we get going. Many of you may know this, but verse 13 is really what's called a deportation analogy. It wasn't uncommon, and you know this if you know the Old Testament in terms of Babylonian captivity of many of the Jews in Jerusalem and Judah, that when a country conquered another country, they would often take a lot of the citizens, even some of the kings and rulers, into their country and literally physically deport them. So that's the imagery here which they would have understood. He has delivered us, rescued us from one domain and authority that you're under, referring here to Satan, and transferred us, deported us to the kingdom of his son. That's the analogy there. We'll define some of the terms like redemption later and image. It says in verse 16 and through 18, a couple of phrases I want to go over. It says in verse 15, he was the firstborn of all creation. Now that doesn't mean that when he became flesh through the miraculous virgin birth with Mary, that it didn't mean that recurring a time. He obviously wasn't the first person born. Firstborn here does not mean time or sequence, first in sequence. It meant first in rank, first in significance, first in status or importance. And the same thing a couple of verses later. It may seem odd if you haven't studied it, that he was the firstborn from the dead. Even in the scripture, he wasn't the first person who was raised from the dead. He raised some himself before he even died. But it's, it's firstborn in the sense of significance and rank and importance, in this case, theologically important, and so forth. Well, let's delve in. I want to share five reasons. I was reading and studying for this message early in the week because I try to start way in advance, and I had taught something similar with four points over a decade ago in a church, and then the Lord says, there's one more, so I added one. But we're going to see and explore these reasons. Why the incarnation? Why did God become flesh? It's not necessarily an exhaustive list, but in this text, it first mentions to reveal God the Father. Second, to redeem us, those who put faith in Christ. Third, to reconcile us with God. Four, to rule, to rule in our lives in light of his authority. But also, ultimately, to refine us, to refine our character that we become more and more like Jesus. Let's go back to reveal God. You see, in verse 15, referring to Jesus, that he was the image of the invisible God. That same term is used in the first few verses of the book of Hebrews. I won't turn there to all the cross-references, but there it's referring to the Son, referring to the last days, which actually began at when, in the time of Christ. And it says he, that Jesus was the exact representation of God. It's a word icon. We get that word image from it. One way to think about it is they didn't have photography in the first century. They certainly had artists. But if a portrait is painted, a good artist will give almost an exact representation of how you looked at that particular time. 
I looked at a picture of me from 35 years ago recently, and I thought, hey, I, I was pretty good looking. At that time, it was an adequate representation of me at that age. But a photograph is, in a sense, an icon. It's an image that shows what you were like when that photograph was taken. That word was used in the first century um, in a description. Let's say there was a business transaction, and they want to make sure that the right people are involved or identified. Well, they didn't have a photograph. They didn't have a driver's license. But what they did have is they would write a paragraph description. Well, this person has a lump on the right leg. This person has a receding hairline. Uh, whatever it is necessary. And that description was this word, a description of what the person looked like. And you know this too. In John 1, Jesus is called the word of God figuratively. And it says in John 1:14, the word became flesh. There's Paul's argument against the Colossian heresy. God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then in verse 18, he expanded on that. It says, in one sense, since he's spirit, no one has seen God the Father at any time, but the Son, Jesus, has explained him. It literally means interpreted him, made him known, revealed him, showed what he is like. So one reason is simply for the first time and since creation of man, you can see God by seeing Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the icon, the image of God. So he was here to show in the flesh for his lifetime what God was like and what his attitudes were and so forth. There was a five-year-old girl in Sunday school. You have so many young children. And I really appreciate the lady. There was one preschool boy in a class what, during Sunday school, and she was teaching him with all her heart when I went by. I love that. You don't have to have many to make an impact. But this five-year-old girl, it's a true story, she was really, after all the kids had finished with their artwork, she was drawing something, and the teacher said, Susie, Susie, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm drawing God, she said. And the teacher said, well, Susie, w we don't know what God looks like. And she said, well, we'll know in a minute <laughs> when I finish. So what the implication for the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh? Well, I mentioned this in a message last week, but it certainly fits here. To know that Jesus was a fully man and suffered means that I can take my needs to him, my temptations to him, because he understands. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 are three of the most precious verses for a believer in the Bible. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. That word sympathize literally means to suffer with. Who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every way like we are, tempted, yet in his case without sin. What's the therefore? Therefore, when we are needy and we're weak, whether we're tempted or otherwise, we can go to him, go before the throne of grace to find mercy and help for our needs. So one thing about the incarnation, when he's revealing God, knowing he was in the flesh, knowing that he had people he loved reject him, knowing that he knew bodily pain like I'll never know when he was crucified, and he also knew what it was like to be sleepy. A lot of things. Because he was man as well as God, he can identify and sympathize with what I go through. This truth simply prompts me to take things to him whether that's confession for sin or help against sin and temptation or whatever need I have. I have someone 
who is not aloof and impersonal. He literally entered our neighborhood. He dwelt among us, it says in John 1.14. So that's one of his purposes. Not the one that maybe means most to me, but it's an important one. Another thing, and I know you've heard this truth before, it's a key word in doctrine, he, to redeem us when we put faith in Christ. In Colossians 1, in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You may know this, but that word redeem in verb form meant to buy back. In the New Testament, in particular, it had the idea of a slave, perhaps one who escaped, and then you wind up having to go get him and buy him back, maybe pay for him again to buy him back. We understand the idea of buying back, though I've never pawned anything. One of my favorite shows is it's Pawn Stars, not porn, Pawn Stars, out of Las Vegas. And most of the time, they're showing things that are purchased, but occasionally, they want to, let's say that it was weekend and you needed cash immediately. Somebody who loaned you money at a high rate needs it or they're going to break your knees. You're living in New York. Let's say that you had to have money and you can't wait till the bank comes or your credit's bad and you know they wouldn't loan it anyway. You may take a nice $500 TV that you really want back and, and you may take it in there to the pawn shop. Well, you expect to get it back. You just need cash. They're going to give you money for it, probably about half of what it's worth. If it's worth 500 then uh, they say, well, we'll give you 200 cash for it. But then when you go back to give it, they give you a sticker to redeem it. Let's say within that 30 days or whatever, if you have the money, you have to go back and pay them like 500 for, uh, for what they give you, 200 That's the nature. You were redeeming it. You were buying back with an inflated price. Boy, we have an inflated price. Verses that add to the understanding of redemption without using it at the end of 1 Corinthians 6. And in Corinth, especially in chapter 6, Paul is dealing with sexual sin among believers. 1 Corinthians 5, he's dealing with, with one young man, probably his mother-in-law, had sex with her. The bottom line is that he's trying to deal with immorality, and he's reminding the Christians there that in the end of chapter 6, that you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and the Lord gave you his Spirit to indwell you. Therefore, physically, in your body, you're to glorify God. And then he says, for you have been bought with a price. And then... That's an idea of redemption, though the word's not there. But the word is also in 1 Peter 1, 18, 19, where he, he said vividly, you weren't bought, referring to believers who put their faith in Christ and were redeemed, were bought back from the field of sin. You were redeemed not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. That's the price paid for it. By the way, I don't know anything about the procedure, but... I've been dreaming for years of getting some Christian T-shirts together and, uh, and maybe uh, getting a little bit of money from them, but I haven't done so yet. Somebody want to run with this idea, see me. But I, I can imagine redemption T-shirts in light of the meaning of this. If I'm a Christian, I might put on the first. God is in real estate and on the back, and I'm his property, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. I like that. Or another one. I'm a high-priced person on the front and on the back, bought with the blood of Jesus, 1 Peter 1, 18, 19. Anyway, that's my idea. 
but I want us to appreciate it. I want us to appreciate it. Redemption, even though it's about making more of Christ and his sacrifice than us and our worth as a human being, nonetheless, it does show the price he's willing to pay to have fellowship with us. If you want a, a doctrine that gives you a source of identity, a sense of significance, think about the price Christ paid for you. It's the key to identity and so forth. Well, you're Abba's child if you've put your faith in Christ. And you're the brother of Christ, according to Hebrews. Not just a friend in John, but a brother, literally a spiritual kin. So it's a special thing. Another thing about redemption is for Christians that we don't want to take sin lightly. I often pray to God because I'm tempted often, say, Lord, don't let me sin successfully. Either let me get caught and be very embarrassed or hurt me through conviction, the temporary pain of conviction that keeps me from further disastrous consequences later on. Spurgeon says to the Christians, to the church in his day, he said, Charles Spurgeon said, if you take sin lightly as a believer, you are automatically taking the death of Jesus lightly on the cross because that's the price paid for our sin. So to reveal God, to redeem men, to reconcile, another doctrinal word which is a different way of explaining our salvation because it says in several verses here things about that. It says in verse 20, through him he, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then in verse 20, uh, also in verse 22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So it's in just a different way like redeem of explaining what happened when we put our faith in Christ and what he did for us. But the key here is the fact that we have peace with God. Romans 5.10, as well as many other verses, like the first few verses of Ephesians 2, talk about people. He's dealing with Christians before they were saved, and he says, you were enemies of God in Romans 5.10. But then through faith you were reconciled to God. You were no longer at conflict with God. Isaiah 59.2, back in those days, to God's people, your sin has made a separation between you and God. And he has turned his face away from you. Well, I have news for you. Even though you may sin and you may have to hurt through consequences, God, if you have truly accepted Christ as your Savior and been redeemed, you have been reconciled and you are acceptable to God. Even when you are hurt over your sin and you have to go in tears and confess and repent, which is very biblical and important, it's never that God won't accept you. If you are his child, he's never pointing his finger at you because he sees in you the righteousness of Jesus. He has embraced wanting you to come and confess as needed. I recall years ago, a pastor of a large Baptist church, Ronald Dunn, gave a story I'll never forget. I heard this on a tape sermon in the 1970s. I'm old, I know. But Ron Dunn gave a story. He said after his kids, then young, were, uh, went to bed, and even often when his wife turned in, he liked to get alone and just pray at the end of the day. And he had a special corner where he had a comfortable chair. He'd get on his knees and then rest himself on the, the seat of the chair. And he said one night he was doing that, and it was like not audible, but Satan whispered to him, 
God doesn't want to be with you right now. Look at what the day you've had. Now, he was a pastor, Christian ministry, certainly saved in his case, but he said, Moran started thinking about the day he'd had. It was one of those days that wasn't always happening with him, but he was so busy to get to the church office and deal with some people and counseling and prepare for a message that he didn't have his quiet time. So he sort of left Jesus out of the schedule. And then at lunch, he was having lunch with someone, and there was an opportunity in dealing with the waitress to give a brief but winsome testimony in light of the conversation with her, and he didn't do it. And then he apparently came home and snapped at his wife because supper wasn't ready on time. Several things like that. And he said, oh, Lord, I don't feel like coming into your presence. And again, not audible, but the Holy Spirit whispered, Ron, if you had spent 30 unheard minutes with me this morning in prayer for your personal soul and your family, would you feel more like praying to me now? Oh, yes, Lord, I would. And he said, Ron, if you had given a brief winsome testimony when you had the opening at that lunch appointment, would you feel more like praying to me? Oh, yes, Lord, I would. And if you hadn't snapped at your wife and, and said something edgy, would you feel more like praying to me now? He said, oh, I would, Lord. And he said, then if that's the case, you would be praying in the name of Ronald Dunn. And then Ronald Dunn almost went in tears as the Spirit whispered, your right to enter my presence because you're a Christian is the righteousness of Christ that has been given to you in what's called justification. You may need to confess, but you have a right to enter my presence in Jesus' name. You are acceptable because he is acceptable. And he said, Ron, you are just as acceptable to me as a Christian as my son is acceptable to me. That's powerful truth to me to keep me from listening to Satan's lies about how God views me as a Christian. That's not taking sin lightly either. He may discipline those he loves, but it's just a reality. Never fear going to the presence of God, especially when you need to confess, because if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you've been reconciled. There's no more enmity. There's no more separation. You're acceptable to him. Someone prayed in a small group once. I wasn't in that group, but I know about it. Lord, thank you for accepting me when I'm so unacceptable now as a Christian. Technically, he was wrong. He's very unacceptable despite his sin if he has asked Jesus to be his Savior. Never fear going into his presence, even when you think you've hurt him, because he has an open embrace, not a pointed finger. And if you want more on that theme, Dane Ortland, paperback book, Gentle and Lowly. I've read through it twice. I even bought a second copy just so I could have it fresh the second time. It'll give you a fresh appreciation for the Lord. So reveal God to redeem man, to reconcile man, and so forth. And then to rule. In verse 18, it makes it plain that he is head that has the idea of authority, the authority of the church, the source, the origin of the church. By the way, if you can just picture this, you adults, I saw a cartoon in a Christian magazine once called Leadership. This must have been several decades ago. And it was a large church staff, and they were having a staff meeting of 10 to 12 people. And the head pastor had a collar on, and he's standing at them and, and talking to them. And he said, this church is not a democracy. This church is a theocracy ruled by God. And by the way, my name is Theo. That's not quite right. 
the pastor had delegated authority, but not that kind. But I've always appreciated the humor there. But to rule. In Philippians 2, when he talked about Jesus condescending and becoming flesh and going to the cross, and after his death and resurrection, he was exalted in the heavens by God the Father. And it says in that text in Philippians 2, 9, 10, you've probably heard this, that he's highly exalted him, and someday every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. Yes, he's my savior, Hebrews suggests it. He is my brother because of blood-bought kin. But at the same time, he's God, and he's not to be trifled with. And basically, it's giving the idea that every knee will bow. Now, for some, it will be too late, as I understand that text and studied more smarter people than me. You won't have a second chance when he returns and the new resurrection to accept Christ. It's got to be in this life. But whether it's Madeleine Mary O'Hare, the famous atheist from decades ago, Osama bin Laden, or Mohammed, or whatever, anyone who doesn't know Christ will acknowledge him as Lord for some. It will be too late, but not for us. I saw a pageant once at First Baptist Church in Columbia, a Christmas special, and it showed, it was really well done, but in a certain song playing in the background, it showed people coming to the manger scene that they had live in there and bowing before it, and I just cried, he's a king, bow before him. He's a king. Does he rule my life? I have to ask myself, it says in the text here that he's to have first place in everything. So the reason he wants to rule, but he's a benevolent ruler. Everything is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, my job, my future, my home, my family, it's mine he says, but I'll loan it to you as a steward to rule. Every knee shall bow. By the way, I think I first read this in Richard Blackaby's book years ago, Experiencing God, but he didn't probably originate it. But, and I've heard late President McQuilkin, president of our seminary and the school at CIU say this. You know, it's impossible as a Christian to say, no, Lord, and mean both words. Because if you tell him no, he's not Lord. And if he's Lord, you can't tell him no. You can't. Is there any place, subtly, any area of my life, I have to ask myself regularly, where I am telling God no, if not directly, by the way I live? Finally, and this is the one that it was always there, but I didn't notice it much this week. But in verse 23, He's talking to these people on the theme of reconciliation. Verse 20, pardon me, verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Notice again the, the repetition of referring to he's in the flesh. He was a man. That's very important doctrine. And then, then he says, why? To present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Well, if you are honest, you know, as a, if you're a Christian, whether you're a child or teenager or whether you're an adult, you know you're, you're not really sinless. Even though positionally you're justified and you, Christ sees you through his righteousness, God the Father sees you through his righteousness. Hebrews 9 and 10 say you're perfect. Well, we know that's not true. Just get married and you'll find that out. 
you're not perfect, but God sees you as it because he sees you in the righteousness of his son. But his ultimate goal is that we be sinless. We know that won't happen until Jesus returns and that this life as we know it now ends. Because it says in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, that when he returns and he appears again, then we will be like him. Hopefully we are growing in faith, and though we're not sinless, we sin less over time because of the means of grace God gives us. But if you ever get discouraged because your growth is three steps forward, two steps back, or you ever, as a Christian, honestly, as I do, get tired, Lord, why am I so vulnerable to this temptation? I feel like I'm in kindergarten spiritually. If you ever you get tired of life sometimes as a Christian and say, I'm tired of failing the Lord, or relationships with people you love, relationships with people you love, both Christians, and yet there's conflict, there's tension, because we're still sinners. Brief story on this last one on Refine. Basically, it's alluding here the, to the eventual glorification. To be glorified, according to the New Testament, is to be like God. To be morally perfect. We're not there yet, positionally, but not experientially. But one day we will be. Because Jesus said, when I come back from my church, you'll be like me. Christ-likeness. But I want to get to one verse. And this is extremely meaningful to me. Years ago, we... Several times, my younger son who lives with us, he's single, he's 47, he has a severe case of Asperger's, which according to many counselors and experts is on sort of a functional side of um, some issues related to emotional development and social development. But uh, with Asperger's, you tend to be not sensitive to other people's emotional cues, you tend to be very opinionated and so forth, and I'm a melancholy, 99 and 9 tenths percent, highly sensitive, good in some ways, weak in the others. So I get hurt easily, and he doesn't give affection easily by his nature with Asperger's. It's sort of a high-functioning form of autism. And we used to clash. We don't clash as often verbally because I've learned not to overreact. At least I'm in the process of learning. But several years ago, I was giving a message out of a section of Romans 8 that included verse 30. Romans 8, if you want one chapter to memorize in your Bible, I can't imagine a better one. It's so chock full of help and doctrine. But I'm reading, and if this is Saturday, and we had had a verbal altercation, never physical, the night before, where he, he made me feel so unloved. He didn't mean to. I know he loves me, and he tells me that, and sometimes asks for apology when he acts so mean-spirited toward me. But I can't take that with somebody I love. I was hurting. So that next afternoon, I was reviewing for that Sunday message and doing a word study out of Romans 8.30, and this is what it says, referring to Christians. In whom he predestined, chose us and before the foundation of the earth, and whom he predestined, he called, Calling here, and most of the New Testament is referring to your salvation, your conversion experience when you were regenerated and you put your faith in Christ. Not calling to some ministry here, but calling to salvation. Okay, you were saved, you were called. And whom he called, he justified, he made right because not only were you forgiven, but all of Jesus' righteousness was put on your account. 
that's justification. You're legally, morally right before God because he sees you through his righteousness. But then another one. Whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we don't use that word a lot other than the glory of God. It means idea of significance and weighty. But it says that you, as a Christian, will be glorified. Now, that's future. The scholars say that's the future, perfect, moral state when Jesus returns. No more struggle with sin. I'm sitting in the den. I happen to be alone at that time in the day on a Saturday afternoon. I'm preaching this the next day, and it hits me. I know Stephen loves me, but his sin and my hypersensitivity and my sin makes us clash so often. And the Holy Spirit whispered, it will be over someday. But by the way, this is the main point. Justified's past when you put your faith in Christ. Call to salvation's past, same time you're justified. Glorified's future, but not in this verse. In this verse, it is in the past tense, and it hasn't even happened yet. This is an unusual use in the New Testament Greek of the prophetic past tense. It means that in God's eyes, your glorification, your perfection, is so sure that I'm treating it as if it's already happened in the past. That's meaningful to me. I sat there and I cried. I started screaming. I, I am not exaggerating anything. I was convulsing, not out of, out of any pain, but out of joy. I started crying loudly, tears rolling down my face. And the Holy Spirit said, there won't always be this friction with Stephen because he knows me and you know me. Someday there will be no barrier in that relationship. You're both glorified and it's as sure to happen in the future because I already put it in the past tense. In my eyes, it's past. Those are some of the ways to reveal God, to show what he's like, to explain him in human terms, to redeem, to buy us back from another domain where we were futile and helpless, to reconcile us, no more separation. Even as a Christian, when I sin, I do need to confess. I can still face painful consequences, but I am acceptable to God because in his eyes, we're reconciled positionally already. I don't have to fear going into his presence. To rule, to have first place in everything, and to refine us, which is a process that's slow in this life, but his goal, according to Romans 8, 29, predestined us to be like his son. By the way, you know Romans 8, 28, all things can work together for good to those who love the Lord, etc. I've often thought it takes all things in this life to make me just a little bit more like Jesus in verse 29. Anyway, okay, I want to wrap up. I read a poem last week, O Come All You Needy, a much more expanded version of a new song, O Come All Ye Unfaithful, that I wrote last year. Last week in the message, because it was on grace and referring to Paul's testimony and conversion in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, I gave a little bit about you to appreciate the fact that in one sense Christ didn't die on the cross in the first century and, or the incarnation he wasn't born then. When did he really born? In the redemptive plan of God it was before he created the earth. In Ephesians 1.11 I believe you were, 
He, he, you were created in him before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9, referring to grace of salvation to Timothy, he said he has saved us from eternity past before time began, before the created order. When did he die for me? When did all this become true? In one sense, before there was a cross on Calvary's hill, but pardon me, before there was a garden in Eden, there was in one sense a cross on Calvary's hill because he's a lamb slain, Revelation 13, 8, from the foundation of the earth. I tried to capture this truth and the real purpose of his birth through a poem that I titled Before. Before Jesus flailed tiny arms and cried, before his virgin birth was prophesied, on a dreaded Roman cross he died. Before the stargazing caravan took gifts to this infant God-man, a crown of thorns was the father's plan. Before Herod's soldiers would contend, before the first man and woman sinned, the son had decided to condescend. By the way, that passage mentions his preexistence in two places. Before he was in the flesh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit were still in existence. Before he labeled himself, I am. Before God spared Isaac with a ram, Jesus was a sacrificial lamb. Before Jesus fought the devil and won, before Mary conceived the Holy One, the Father abandoned his only son. Before bread and wine in upper room, before his body formed in Mary's womb, he lay lifeless in a borrowed tomb. Before Gethsemane's heart-wrenching prayer, before innkeepers had no room to spare, Calvary existed, a cross was there. Some men live without ever knowing why. Meaning is elusive. They search and they sigh. Not Jesus Christ. He was born to die. By the way, if anyone wishes to give me your name in an email, I will send you some material on last week's message and this one free. I will never share your email with anybody. That's entirely up to you. If you were one who gave it to me on September 3rd, four or five people did. I don't need it again. But I'd be happy to send you some material on some of these themes with email attachments before we do it. And in closing, maybe it's because I'm depression prone. If you weren't here September 3rd, I gave testimony with sermon on means of grace and handling depression. But it's not just for those of us who are chronically depressed. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, often December is emotionally very difficult for me, and it has nothing to do with my father's death on Christmas Day. I often hear adults say, have you ever thought it? Especially those whose kids are grown and out of the house. It just doesn't feel like Christmas this year. Even Christians say it, and I've often felt this way. The meaning and specialness of Christmas seems elusive to me some years. I'm more depression-prone in December than typically. We feel somewhat empty, I do, discouraged because the season seems to have lost its novelty and excitement. I no longer have the kids opening presents and seeing their delight, so forth. But I remind myself of this truth. The meaning of Christmas has nothing to do with how I feel or my inward state and everything to do with historical fact, as we just saw in Colossians. Jesus was born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago to launch God's strategy to reconcile us to himself and to deal with the sin problem, separating us from him. So whether or not I'm acutely aware of God's presence, whether I feel his presence, whether I feel the Christmas spirit is in one sense irrelevant. 
It doesn't matter because the truth of Christianity and the truth of Christmas that we celebrate is an objective fact in history. So he pledged his presence in many verses of scripture. Emmanuel, God with us, that's the first Christmas. But he's also promised his presence all over scripture. John 14, 16, the Holy Spirit within us. Hebrews 13, 5, Isaiah 41, 10. So if he says he's with me, that's good enough for me. I don't have to feel his presence to have it. I don't have to feel the meaning of Christmas to live it. Thank you. Let's close in prayer before he comes up. Father, I thank you for what these truths mean to me. I hope that you have taken this from the ear to the mind for understanding to the heart for application. Because thank you for letting me share a few things that mean a lot to me. And why the first Christmas and these five reasons. In Jesus' name, amen.